rock and roll music, as a pop culture entity, is most definitely in its golden years. This endows it with a rich tapestry of watershed events, distinguishing characters, and significant works, more so than newer genres of music. As interesting as this may all seem, novices might find this a little too intimidating, a little too finished, nothing left to discover for themselves, since everything seems to have been mined already. It's how I kind of felt when I discovered rock and roll. When I arrived to the party, the Beatles and Led Zeppelin were finished. John Lennon had been shot dead. Bon Scott was dead. There were no Stooges or MC5 anymore. The Cramps, Metallica, and Black Flag were too underground to find, and there was no such thing as the Melvins or Mudhoney or Caius. It seemed the only way to enjoy rock and roll was to grin and bear what was already laid out in front of you. In other words, another generation's bands, another generation's music. This might have been the death knell between me and my then burgeoning love for all things hard rock, but luckily, Van Halen were the biggest band in the world. Now, I've already spent two podcast episodes discussing Van Halen. Episode 114 with Ian Christie, Bazillion Points publisher and author of the Van Halen biography, Everybody Wants Some, and episode number 115 with Mitch Malloy, singer, songwriter, producer, and briefly, Van Halen lead singer in the mid-90s. Getting to discuss this one band that inspired and defected an entire generation is something I can do for hours. It's now literally happened with this, the third episode I've devoted to Van Halen bringing Greg Renoff, author of the book Van Halen Rising, onto the podcast. With Van Halen Rising, Greg Renoff managed to shed light on a band which, despite their 80 million albums sold, are still bathed in mystery and, to be honest, indifference. The behind-the-scenes drama, the shifts in musical direction— the momentous lineup changes, and the years of inactivity haven't garnered them any new followers, but rather sullied their brand. Renoff's book does much to remind and reinstate the Pasadena Four's status amongst rock and roll luminaries. I have read my fair share of rock bios over the years. I love a good one. But I have never read a rock bio like the one Greg wrote. A lot of the time, the selling point were the rock bio or the chapters when the band were at the height of their popularity, when the fame and the money enabled juicy gossip and mythical tales to come forth. But Greg's book focuses on the time when the band was struggling in clubs, in bars, playing house parties and school dances. There isn't an array of vaunted celebrities adding anecdotes, but instead friends, partygoers, school classmates who saw the band and maybe even spent time with the band almost 40 years ago. And that is what makes it probably the most captivating rock bio I've read on a band. How Greg managed to find some of these people is impressive enough. If you're a Van Halen fanatic, then names like Pete Angelus, Marshall Burl, Don Landy, and Ted Templeman, also attached to the book, will no doubt prick up your ears as well. The best part about doing this podcast is it allows me to indulge in my fixations with no apologies necessary. 
I can't very well call up Greg and bend his ear with Van Halen talk at the drop of a dime. I need an excuse. Thus the podcast. I guess it's a sad way to look at it, but here you have me at my most content when I'm talking Van Halen. Initially, I approached Greg to continue what I had started with Ian Christie on episode number 114, a discussion on the enigma that is Eddie Van Halen. But Greg suggested another angle, Diamond David Lee Roth, singer of the band and all-around entertainer. Greg even gave me some homework in order to prepare for this episode, as you will soon hear. I highly suggest grabbing a copy of Van Halen Rising. It'll make you love the band even more and maybe turn you into a newly appreciative fan. It's out on ECW Press, the same imprint that published our Too Much Trouble book by Stuart Berman in 2015. Aside from Van Halen Rising, Greg's articles have appeared in Noisy and Ultimate Classic Rock, where he often delves even further into the world of Van Halen. I want to thank Blue Mike Microphones and Skull Candy Headphones for their support of the podcast. I want to thank Chino Loco's Restaurants for making fish burritos stuffed with chow mein noodles. And I want to thank everyone, including you, for taking time to give the podcast a listen. This podcast is free to listen to, free to download, and free to subscribe. You can subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Maybe you already have if you're listening to this. And please leave a comment on the iTunes store. I see a few people have recently, and I thank you for that. All right, let's begin another Van Halen session, this time with author Greg Renoff. He's the latest guest on the official Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. The Danko Jones podcast is the best around. Nick Flanagan is Danko's go out to for free. I'm so glad I like to sometimes get me in from fucked up. Stop playing hang down, down. I got to know Danko a few years ago when I used my vacation time to follow the band on the road. And I even spent a day with Danko in some European town that escapes me. But we ended up talking about 17th century art, his pet rock collection, <laughs> the summers he spent as a teenage air traffic controller, 
his venomous snake collection, his passion for planking, and the night he spent with Ringo Starr's housekeeper. He's a fascinating character with a wealth of stories to share. And I'm a huge fan of Danko, but a bigger fan of his stories. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, get ready, because the Danko Jones Podcast starts now! Hello, Greg. Hello, Danko. How you doing? Hey, man. It's great to talk to you. Good to talk to you after uh, so many um, messages and texts, emails back and forth. Meeting mutual friends as well. Yeah, and it was cool to uh, yeah, to meet uh, Brian, who I had a nice chat with at, uh, at NAM. He was really uh, great, great to talk to him. Brian Slagle, yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. such a great guy, and that's cool. I, did you guys talk Van Halen? We did a little bit. We mostly talked um, Iron Maiden. Actually, I kind of, I kind of bent his ear a little bit about his Maiden collection and stuff. And there were people waiting to talk to him, so I couldn't talk to him for too long. But we chatted for a few minutes, and we connected on Twitter and stuff. And uh, yeah, great guy. And I, I saw him. And I was like, hey, I know who you are. And we just started talking. It was fun. Yeah, I, I did a podcast with him. I had no idea he was that big a Maiden fan. I listened to it, yeah, and that's where I sort of got the the interest. And of course, I was um, really interested in the fact that he was this obsessive bootleg collector. I, I did my own tape trading back in the day, and uh, it was fun to to uh, chat with him and to realize he was one of the the guys, uh, you know, recording uh, Maiden at uh, Long Beach and all these other places out in L.A. And of course, I would see those tapes. I remember those tapes floating around. Well, you've you have you are quite an obsessive uh, on Van Halen, and you've written this book, Van Halen Rising. Um, and you've gotten uh, a lot of attention from other people in bands, uh, besides myself. I mean, there's been other people who have reached out to you. I know Kirk Hammett was one of them. It w- yeah, that was really amazing. He said he wanted to read the book, and I was, of course, more than happy to send him a copy of the book. And uh, Billy Sheehan and Greg Bissonette, and uh, oh, I just had wow. the op- yeah, and I just had the opportunity to. Uh, sign a book for Alex Van Halen. Now, I did not meet Alex, but I met Alex's tech, John Douglas at NAMM, who's a really, really nice guy. And uh, I showed him the book, and he was like, uh, I don't think Alex has this. Why don't you sign one, and I'll uh, bring it to him. And so that was that was fun, too. Whoa, that is huge. Yeah, I'll hopefully uh, hear from him one day. You know, I, I think I've told you I get that question fairly regularly. People will ask me if any of the guys in the band have ever reached out to me, and I've never heard a word from anybody um, from the Van Halen camp. And so, uh, yeah, maybe Alice will crack it open and uh, check out some of the pictures and maybe some of the stories might bring back some memories for him. That wouldn't have been one of my questions because, I, you know, Van Halen are fairly tight-lipped on everything, every aspect of their band, especially these days. So it's great that at least someone one degree away from Alex reached out to you. Yeah, it was fun. He's a... Uh... He's a really interesting guy, uh, John. He uh, builds drum kits. He, he does stuff for ZZ Top and for Van Halen, and he's a, he's an artist. And, uh, yeah, we had a great conversation, and that was uh, – yeah, I was, of course, flattered that he thought I would bring a book up to Alex. That was cool. But, uh, yeah, you'd be surprised that people will send me that question fairly regularly. And, you know, it's – yeah, I'm just like, no. And, uh, you know, as I've said to people before, it's, it's uh, never was something where it was about – you know, trying to get attention from those guys. It was just my own, as you said, obsession about Van Halen and then my interest in trying to document their their history and uh, do justice to, I thought, the legacy of the band that I didn't really think was getting the full due that it deserved. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And that's the reason why I'm doing a lot of these Van Halen 
podcasts, as I guess you can call them. Um, maybe people listening might not realize, well, why does Billy Sheehan, Greg Bissonette, Kirk Hammett, why do these people want to read your book about Van Halen? There's lots of biographies on lots of bands, especially these days. Your book um, is so specific to a period that was never really well documented. And to be fair, in, in lots of bands' histories, this particular part of a band's you know, history is, is always glossed over. And uh, you go so fucking deep. I was stunned. Reading it, the first thing that comes to everyone's mind is you're out in Tulsa. How the hell did you even find one of these people? Like, it's not as if, like, you know, trying to document a history of a band, people on Facebook and on, on websites, they lead with, you know, oh, I used to tech for Van Halen. I used to do yeah. this for ZZ Top. I used to do this for Megadeth, et cetera, et cetera. These are people who attended a party that Van Halen played at yeah. in like, I don't know, 75 uh, yeah. childhood friends that not just childhood friends, like, Oh yeah, I see him in the video. Like, Oh, I went over to his house a couple of times in January of 71. <laughs> you know, like how did you find these people? Well, you know, it started with, um, there was, a, I guess the way it, it first really got going for me. Um, I had, I had reached out to a couple of people, when I first thought about writing an article about Van Halen, I, I, I did a little bit of Googling and I found a club owner. I've told the story before. It turned out that he was one of the guys who had hired Van Halen for, you know, bar gigs. He was an owner of a, a club in uh, Van Nuys, California called the Rock Corporation. Long gone, but it was a real dive, a biker bar. And he, uh, he and I talked on the phone. I told him I was thinking about doing an article about Van Halen's early days. And, uh, he, he told me a story about Van Halen doing what t-shirt contests at, um, his club and how that all turned out to be. That was the first, first real place in California that you could go to a bar and they would have a wet t-shirt contest inside the bar. So that was the first thing. Um, the other thing that I did was there was a, a video that came out a few DVD a few years ago called, um, Van Halen, the early days. And there were some guys in that video who had either, as I said, you know, worked for Van Halen or had, um, in other cases, um, been around in Pasadena. And I just sort of tracked those guys down and started talking to them. Um, and it just started snowballing from there. So I would talk to one of their techs and, um, a guy who would actually went out on the road for a little while at Van Halen in 1978, a guy named Tom. And, uh, he said, you should talk to my friend, Dana, you know, he went to all the parties with me. I talked to Dana, and it turns out that Dana and Ed were friends and going back in high school, you know, we're kind of guitar buddies. And it just all sort of snowballed from there. So when I would get off the phone with somebody, I would just say, hey, who else should I talk to? And then I just kept after it. Um, Facebook was really essential. I have to say that doing this type of book would have been much more difficult without social media. In other words, people would say, you know, look for my friend uh, Jim Peterson. You know, he, he's a He's a guy. And of course, you could put into Facebook, you'd find the mutual friend and I could message that person and talk to them. And so that's how it just all started. And really, it was just about me being persistent and just sort of understanding that if I didn't do 
a lot of interviews and really dig deep into this thing. The book was just going to be, like you said, just glossed over because there wasn't going to be a thing where you could get Circus Magazine wasn't covering Van Halen in 1972, obviously. There were no uh, newspaper reviews of the band. There was none of those other sources um, that would be normally useful for uh, um, tracking a band. But I will say this. The reason why, ultimately, I think I dug so deep, as you mentioned, you know, obsessed fan, but also... You know, at some point it just sort of hit me that when you look at the um, the demo, for example, that Van Halen did for Warner Brothers slash Ted Templeman in early 1977, right after their sign, I mean, that's basically the blueprint for their entire catalog for the first six records. Now, they did write other songs, obviously, that ended up in a lot of the records, Jump being one, Girl Gone Bad. We go through this. There are obviously numerous songs that those guys wrote. But if you listen to that 25-song demo, which is up on YouTube, um, that's pretty much about 50% of their uh, – about 40 to 50% of their catalog yeah. that they did. And you sort of realize that all that was written and and laid down a year plus before anyone outside of Los Angeles had heard of Van Halen. And so for me, that was kind of the, the real driving point too. If we're going to understand what made Van Halen so great and made those first six albums to me so magical, um, you got to find out – what the hell was going on in Los Angeles and what the hell Van Halen was up to before they uh, broke out. Um, yeah, it, it is interesting that you touch touch on that part of Van Halen that, like you said, 40% of their whole you know catalog was written in, in those years. And um, even with A Different Kind of Truth, I was told a couple of years before it was released mm-hmm. in 2010 that, you know, Roth is back with Eddie and they're working on tunes, but these are the tunes that were kind of rejects from back in the Ted Templeman days. And true enough, when the album was released, um, they they could have been on Fair Warning and Women and Children easily slipped in mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it also is astonishing to me, and I know we're veering off the subject, but uh, when I did a podcast with Ian Christie, author of Everybody Wants Some, it was noted how prolific Eddie Van Halen is as just mm-hmm. a recorder of music. Um, and yet, like you said, most of the catalog or the catalog that you know caused them the most attention was written in a, in a small period of years. And that is baffling to me. It's just this, this real weird puzzle that... I'm trying to solve by doing these podcasts. And you solved a little bit of the puzzle with your book covering those years that you covered. And when I read the book, I was, I mean, I'm not trying to kiss your ass or anything, but I, I was really taken back in those days. I could really, you know, with the photos I've seen and I could see those those gigs going down. I could see Paul and Gene attending the concert. Yeah. I could see Gazari there. I could see the, the club. And it was, it was amazing that I realized in reading it that, yes, in Circus Magazine, circa 85, 86, they would mention, you know, in a sentence, backyard party. And it never really hit me that, yeah, what, what, these days, that, that whole kind of, subculture of 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 music is long gone backyard parties setting up your own pa i the only band that i know who set up their own pa was van halen because i'd hear them talk about it in interviews when they talk about the good old days and you wrote about it in extensive detail it was incredible 
Like, I mean, I, I know they played way more parties than you covered in the book. Oh, yeah. The book can't cover every single party, but there's certain parties, especially the one that created a riot with the cops. I mean, you talked to the people, the kids who threw the party. Yeah. Well, again, that, first of all, uh, thanks for your kind words. I'd also urge everyone to check out Ian's book. It's really good. I actually um, broke the binding on that book, working on my own book, just reading it kind of, you know, kind of uh, Ian especially does a really, really good work on the post-78 period uh, yeah. to, like, lay all that stuff out. I mean, Ian goes all the way through, up through, I'm trying to remember when the book came out. So right before, like, literally right before Roth rejoins Van Halen, which is kind of funny. He sort of had that uh, that great timing, too, that the book came out right before the, the announcement. He said um, that the, the book was released on the day they announced it. <laughs> exactly. It's That's like, insane. yeah, it's like, it's amazing, right? Um, but, you know, the thing is, again, people in Pasadena – remember these parties. So if you're of a certain age, you had that experience where you were going to Pasadena High School. It's 1971. It's 1973. And what you did was you looked for flyers and you asked your friends what's going on this weekend. And inevitably, there were parties that were going to be um, featuring Van Halen or previously they were called Mammoth. And so the mm -hmm. two of the very big parties that I ended up covering in great detail in the book, I mean, people would you know say oh I, I you know remember these particular parties the uh, one party was thrown by the Immlers the house is still there actually that the, the the house is still there in Pasadena you can go and drive past it and you can see the backyard and you know kind of where the fence was and you can kind of see where it was um, another party was thrown by a guy named Jack Van Fersche who's who's around uh, as well people remember these parties because they were so huge. Um, you know, it didn't mean every Van Halen backyard party was that big, obviously, and not everyone remembers every single Van Halen backyard party. But I sort of began to focus in on those two because those were considered to be the ones that were the largest. Um, both of them ended up in the newspaper, not talking about Van Halen, but just saying, you know, police break up large teenage disturbance and, you know, said a rock band mm -hmm. caused, a, uh, caused a, you know, noise disturbance, these types of things. They didn't mention Van Halen. But, you know, that was sort of me sort of deciding as a historian to say, okay, what are we going to try to focus on? I'm going to try to lay out about these two parties. You know, and they these guys also, um, for me too, the admiration for how hard they worked. And so Catholic schools, you know, playing at Catholic school dances, playing at, as I said, biker bars, playing Everywhere they can possibly play to try to make money. Playing money, playing at Gazaris, and really the only um, thing about Gazaris that was halfway, I think, beneficial to their career was it was on the Sunset Strip. Um, but as I talk about in the book, this nightclub itself, Gazaris, at that time had a pretty poor reputation. It was kind of a, a club in decline. It was seen as sort of a, a place where you're going nowhere. And so didn't stop those guys, though. They just kept playing and playing. And, of course, part of what ends up happening, when, as you know, as a musician, when you play that much – you get to be really, really tight as a band, and you end up becoming really, really well-versed with how to write good, catchy rock songs. And I think that was the, the thing, too, for Van Halen. Their, um, their cover band days, these years and years, months and months of just playing top 40 of the time, uh, playing the hard rock songs they liked that they could throw in into those sets, made those guys quite good at writing their own material. And so when you hear the stuff on the first Van Halen record, for me, you can hear the distillation of all of the stuff they played, whether it be pop music or heavy metal, proto metal, whatever you want to call it, it all sort of came flowing through that record. You, you make a mention very quickly, um, that if you drive past the houses, you could see the backyards. Did you go to Pasadena and like stake out a Starbucks or something and just like, <laughs> like look at you know? Did you did you go to the places? I, I I did end up doing um, 
after I had been going on this for a few years, you know, and I was teaching school at the time, so it wasn't like I was working on this every single day. But as I, in the summertime and at the time when I had times, I would go, um, I went to California a couple of times and I did, um, yeah, I did check some of these places out. I, I did get to see some of these, um, these homes and got the sense of the neighborhoods and tried to um, just figure a way to kind of bring that description to life of what Pasadena was like, you know, driving past Roth's house, um, driving past the Van Halen home, which is still there. Ross house is there too. Uh, and getting a, uh, kind of a lay of the land. And then I, you know, ironically enough, I did meet with one guy who, uh, who was really helpful to me, um, <laughs> at a Starbucks and did an interview with him there. I did most <laughs> of my interviews over the phone. Right. Um, but I did do, I did. Yeah. I did meet with people out there and, uh, yeah, that was part of it. I mean, just to sort of shake some people's hands and let people know that I was serious about this. This wasn't just sort of some half-baked scheme to write this book, that I was going to do it right, and I was going to really make it as comprehensive and as um, just as uh, compelling as I could be and make it that book that we all – that I wanted to read. I mean, that's why I wrote it because I wanted to read this book. Yeah, I would have – I I just – I can't recommend this book highly enough to, to Van Halen fans. Um, another person that stands out, before I read your book, I read uh, Could This Be Magic mm-hmm. by Elizabeth Wiley, and I noticed some of her photos that she actually took, I believe, ended yep. up in your book. Am I yes. right? Yeah, Liz. Um, so I ended up contacting Liz at some point, and then what ended up happening is that Liz told me that when she did her f- book, which was all – which is a great book, by the way. I mean, people will say, well, it's not a lot of writing in it. I mean, she's – She's just was trying to show off the photos she took. So it's yeah. it's a really well worth it to check out these cool pictures. Um, so one of the things that ended up happening in talking to Liz was Liz said I had found another box of negatives that I was not able to find when I did the book. I looked for it, looked for it. She ended up finding it. So she sent me the negatives. And so what I ended up doing was taking all those negatives to a photo place here in Tulsa and having those negatives put on a, a DVD. One of the things that ended up coming out of those negatives are photographs that you can see of Eddie and Alex together in a garage in um, Altadena, California, which is now gone. It turned out that Liz Wiley, who's thanked, by the way, Elizabeth Wiley is thanked on the, the liner notes of the first Van Halen record. That's how uh, you know how much they uh, appreciated what she did for them. She let them uh, practice in a garage in a house that she owned. Basically, she had a house that she owned in uh, Altadena. And in exchange for those guys helping her paint and fix up the house, which is kind of funny to think about those guys tearing up hotel rooms later. But, uh, (laughs) you know, in exchange for those guys helping her renovate the house, she let them practice in the garage. And so you can see Eddie and Alex standing there uh, with the uh, Eddie with the gold top Les Paul and Dave in these plaid pants. And when those when I saw those negatives, I was just like, this is this is gold. I mean, because this was, you know, this is them as a garage band. And so, yeah, she was the person who documented that stuff. She was a friend of Dave's and she had the good sense to bring a camera and take pictures of Van Halen when they were a five piece, when they had a keyboard player, when they had Mark Stone as a bass player, mm-hmm. was a very good bass player. And so, yeah, Elizabeth Wiley is a, a person we should all be thanking because she had, the, again, the, the brains to be able to say, yeah, I'm going to take these pictures. This is something's happening here. And she told me from the very get go that Dave was determined to be a star. I mean, she said that was like, as soon as she met him, he was like clear that that was his goal. And he made that clear to her that he wanted to be a rock star. It's an interesting uh, read because it's from someone who directly knew David Lee Roth during those days. Yeah. Um, so it's it's yeah it's it's um, it's on iTunes. People can I think it's not it doesn't even clock in at a hundred pages. So it's a quick read. Oh, it's, yeah, it's short. And, you know, she, she was again she and um, 
if I remember correctly, her sister used to make clothes for Dave when they were in Red Ball, when Dave was in Red Ball Jet, his pre-Van Halen band. So that's right. how far back she goes. I mean, she was like, you know, Dave would say things, I want a fur vest, she told me. And like, she and her sister would be like, okay. And they would go get, you know, fake fur from some store and they would make him a fur vest and stuff. And so, you know, yeah, to me, um, I'm very appreciative of all the people who took the time to tell me these stories. Again, Liz, just to share those photographs and to um, just understand that this is rock history that deserves to be documented. So I'm very grateful to all those people. Now, um, this is an easy segue. Elizabeth Wiley, friend of David Lee Roth, made him crazy clothes back in the day. David Lee Roth, someone that I have kind of ignored over the last few podcasts simply because I'm all DLR'd out. I've, I love DLR. I talk about him all the time. And my whole reasoning for reaching out to Ian and doing the podcast, reaching out to Mitch, um, and, and of course you, was this ob- recent obsession that I had gotten over Eddie Van Halen when I read an old Classic Rock magazine article which stated that in 83 he carved up um, Marvin Hamlish's piano and recorded it like a minute and a half ends up on 95's Balance album. And it just opened up this whole new dimension to me about what Eddie Van Halen is as a musician, tortured, maybe serving two masters, et cetera, et cetera. So I've been ultra-focused on Eddie Van Halen. In talking to you leading up to this podcast, you reminded me of a lost segment of DLR, and that is his Crazy from the Heat movie that was supposed to be made and you sent me this is like a a, a lost relic it's like it's like finding the lost the sacred scroll um and i i feverishly read it i think in a day and a half on tour on our last jaunt um and it's Crazy from the Heat, it's the screenplay that David Lee Roth wrote, the final draft. I don't know. I'm not going to ask how you you got it, but you sent it to me. I'm sure everyone can find it on the internet these days. Um, I've read it now, 77 pages. Um, and uh, thank you for letting me read that. I The whole movie played in my head because, it to me, I think it's an extension of those Crazy from the Heat videos. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, let me tell you the story, this, this, everyone the story about this. So um, um, I'm working on an article on the Edom and Smile Band, which will be out soon uh, in a publication that I think a lot of people people like. Um, but before that comes out, I, I, I was uh, working on doing the research for it, obviously. So I've been working on that. And I s- spoke to a person. I'm not going to mention this person's name, but for sake of everyone trusting me, this person was in a position to know what all went down mm. uh, in 1985. So the, this person told me that Um, At the end of the 1984 album cycle, one of the things that ended up happening was that there was going to be a a break, supposedly. There was going to be – they were going to take time off. They were not going to make a record right away to follow up um, 1984. This is after some back and forth and some, some, uh, I think, uh, false starts on recording with Dave. So it wasn't – the band wasn't breaking up. It was just they are going to take a break. But before that even ended up happening – uh, there was an idea floated in the circle of Van Halen to do a Van Halen movie. Now, if we think about Van Halen 1984, because the videos had been so successful, so thinking about, um, you know, this is even before uh, or around the time of California Girls. We're talking about Hot for Teacher, Jump, Panama. All these videos had been so, so successful. An idea was floated that said, okay, why don't we do a Van Halen movie? Um, and, and to me, that makes 
sort of first makes you cock your head and be like a Van Halen movie. But then you think about Hard Day's Night. You think about mm-hmm. Song Remains the Same. You think about Kids Are All Right, all these great rock movies. You think, hey, look, if there was ever a time Van Halen was going to do a, a movie of some sort that would be played in midnight movies and would have screenings, that would be the time. So that idea is floated. It ends up being not um, accepted by all members of the band. You can imagine Dave was very much for it. Other people in the band were not as enthused about the idea. So that idea gets scrapped. For the, There's not going to be a Van Halen movie. In the meantime, again, there's going to be this break. We're going to take a break for a year. So what ends up happening is that Dave sets off to try to make a movie on his own. And so that's how the crazy from the heat project gets going um again along the way as we all know the band collapses falls apart because of stuff that's being um played out inside the band where things are no longer working obviously for eddie and for dave Mm -hmm. Uh, we kind of leave that to the side but dave ends up doing this this idea for this movie and so he and pete angelus go to town in writing a screenplay and get things all lined up to shoot this film what ended up happening um well the film itself we should talk a little bit about the film itself you read the script so it's a I think it's definitely a document of the times. It's one of those <laughs> 80s, going to be one of those 80s sort of, you know, like like kind of like a Rodney Dangerfield back-to-school movie. Anyone who's seen that movie, it's going to be like that. It's be like a lot of setup for Dave to drop these jokes. There were supposed to be, from what I understand, lots of cameos where people like 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 Rodney Dangerfield would just show up. Maybe like Cindy Lauper would show up in the movie. That was the idea behind the movie. Um, but the plot very, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, we get all <laughs> the plot. But there is a plot. The plot was basically... Dave has a Dave is a rock star. He's on tour with his band. Uh, his manager is in trouble with the mob because he has a big gambling debt. But Dave wants to go on a long vacation, and Dave's going to go to the tropics and go on this long vacation. Now the, the evil manager has to force Dave to come back and to go to work because the manager needs money. And so all through this movie, um, you know, there are going to be these setups, these skits for Dave to sort of do his thing. Anyway, so. As we all know, in the summer of 1985, there is a article that comes out in Rolling Stone magazine. I say we all know this because this is the, this is how this went down. Um, that article was the first I ever remember seeing, and I think anyone who, who kind of remembers back, um, that's what ended up happening. Was that there was this article in Rolling Stone, and I'm looking at it right now, August excuse me, August 15, 1985, where Eddie Van Halen says, "quote." The band as you know it is over. Dave left to be a movie star. I don't give a fuck what he says. He even had the balls to ask me if I'd write the score for him. Me, I'm looking for a new lead singer because I've got so much material ready to go. Stuff Dave probably wouldn't have wanted to sing. It's a little too melodic for him. And he kind of goes on. Um, and that's that was sort of – and everyone, the public sort of knows that Van Halen's over. So, you know um, – I'm sure the, I'm sure there was inklings of that happening well before Eddie went to the press. But nonetheless, that's right. the that's the end of Van Halen for the public. So in the meantime, Dave is going to go full force with Pete Angelus. So Pete, who's Dave's right hand man, um, the guy who was the creative consultant who came up with a lot of the ideas for the tours, designed the stages, all this stuff. Pete and Dave are still working together. And they write this script. They were supposed to start shooting in October 1985. Now, they actually had a movie deal. They had gotten a movie deal with CBS uh, Pictures. And what ends up happening is that CBS goes bankrupt. I shouldn't say CBS itself goes bankrupt. Basically, the CBS Theatrical Films Division goes bankrupt. So those guys get a call that the movie's not going to happen. 
Now, one of the things that was going to happen with this film was that all of the songs that ended up, or I shouldn't say all of them, most of the songs that ended up on Eat Em and Smile, Shy Boy, if you look actually at the script, you can see that Shy Boy is noted. The end of the film, That's Life, is noted as well. So the, the songs that were going to be in the film ended up becoming the Eat Em and Smile record. So basically what ended up happening is that the movie deal blows up. Pete and Dave have to go into all this litigation. They're trying to find another movie deal. But in the meantime, at the end of 1985, because the movie has now been shut down, Dave decides to do this album. Now, there's going to be an album all along um, with the songs, but they decided to go full force into doing the record now rather than trying to do that at the end of the, after shooting the movie. And so that's what we end up seeing is that the Eat Em and Smile record is going to have the songs on it that would have been included in – the movie. And so the movie itself, to me, I always think it's a real insight into how ambitious Dave was, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just talked a few minutes ago about Dave's pursuit of stardom. And, um, and, and clearly, after the videos had been so successful, Dave had it in his head that, look, this is the right moment for me to take this to another level. And, and I can't say as much as we could speculate that that might have been hurtful to Eddie. He may have felt that Dave was leaving the band. He may have, and again, I don't know exactly what went on inside all of the the halls of Van Halen. Obviously none of us do except those guys, but that'd be my speculation. Maybe he felt that this was a a slight to him or that, that Dave had abandoned the band. On the other hand, you can kind of understand from Dave's perspective, this is it. I mean, all of the great, you know, Frank Sinatra is in movies. Uh, you go down the line, all these Elvis made movies. Dave wants to make a movie. So, I mean, right? I mean, that's, yeah. it makes perfect sense. And so he, he, it's it's something the Van Halen band doesn't want to do. And Dave can't just put it aside. Uh, he just can't leave it. And so the movie never gets made. But the other thing that's interesting is that I'll bring this out more in the article I'm writing is that so they were so close to finishing. I shouldn't say so close to finishing. They were so close to shooting the movie. They had all of the characters. They had all of the the costumes. Right. And so the people who appeared in the California girls video and the people who appeared in the Yankee Rose video, for example, the, the store owner, the woman who comes up to the counter with yeah. all the vestments that they were going to be in the movie from what I understand. And those costumes, those were costumes that were made for the crazy from the heat movie. And so you kind of get a little bit of an insight or a vision of what the movie would have been like from that from that video, and then of course the going crazy video. Dave would have had the fat suit on in the movie at some point. However, that would have worked. I'm not sure right. which character he would have played, but he would have played one of the characters. Pete Angelus would have appeared in the movie. Interestingly enough, um, if you read the script, it talks about um, an Ed. That's Eddie Anderson, who was Dave's bodyguard. Clearly, he was going to appear in the movie, and so yeah. Dave was just going to take this and like basically run with this whole thing. And they were close. I mean, they, you know, it was just was bad luck in some ways. It wasn't the movie. It wasn't that the the CBS films thought we don't want to make this movie per se. It was the whole division went and shut down. So let's say there were five other movies being made by other companies. All those movies got shut down and they were never able to get another deal for the movie or they didn't try. And so what we end up with are songs like uh, Going Crazy, Elephant Gun, as you can imagine. So one of the, the things that happens in the film is they end up going to this this island in the Pacific as part of the, the whole setup for the movie is that Dave goes on vacation, leaves right. his career, and they go to this island Pacific. You can imagine Elephant Gun being part of that as somehow played out with a scene with an elephant or something. That was all going to be part and parcel of the 
of the film. And so um, in talking to Billy Sheen about this as well, I mean, he was kind of impressing upon me, yeah, how, how audacious this was. It was like he goes from being this guy who's driving a Pinto with, a, as he always likes to talk about, how, with a, a donut on the car and being this musician who's barely able to pay his bills working for Talos to this guy who Dave has now basically said, Van Halen's over. I want you to be my bass player. And oh, by the way, we're going to make a movie, you know, <laughs> and you're going to be in the movie, you know. And so it's it was a very audacious plan and um those guys just kind of um had to figure a way forward after the movie went and blew up and they did they made this this album and the videos and that was the uh the whole crazy from the heat extravaganza there that didn't end up happening i i mean it's reading the script it was you know laid out in front of me in my mind's eye i could see how dated it was like you mentioned uh the jokes are uh, I, I don't. I, I try to. I tried to read it f- from the point of view of someone from 1985 reading it. You know, right. like these days, those kinds of jokes just would fall flat. Exactly. But I think that if they really did make that movie, it would it wouldn't have been a blockbuster, but it would have been a cult hit that people would reference over and over again, and we'd watch it over and over and over and over again. I, I think it's uh, it was cheesy on paper. Um, but because it's in David Lee Roth's hands, and that's another thing is it's so hard to stress to people when you talk about Van Halen and David Lee Roth, just how big David Lee Roth was as, as a personality. He was kind of like how big, you know, Kanye West is or a Beyonce or, you know, like he was the pinnacle of pop rock music at the time. And there were, there wasn't an internet, there wasn't a, you know, a PS3 four or an xbox it was just mtv and that's what everybody watched mm-hmm. he could yeah. have he could have done it i, I agree and I'm, i, I want to hear what more we should have to say but i think i think you're you're dead on target yeah the, if you read the script I mean, the jokes are very politically incorrect today i mean they just be like be like uh no you know we can do this it's just sort of it's a lot of stereo a lot of let's say a, uh, ethnic and and uh, sexual stereotypes about people and so you can you know kind of imagine the type of humor but i mean you're so you're so dead on target i mean i think i can't remember the whole um what greg bissonette told me but i think he told me the day that he found out he had the audition dave told them something like yeah watch tv tonight i'm gonna be on the tonight show or something i mean that's how big like yeah. when bissonette gets in the band it's like not yeah. only is he getting this band with this great rock star but it's a guy who's like you know sitting down with johnny carson on tv and talking to johnny carson whoever he was talking to you know yeah. david letterman and these guys this was this was dave um and yeah again the thing too you hit on is that mtv made those videos so popular i can imagine you can be sure that if that movie had come out that mtv would have had all of this sort of promo material dave would have milked that for all it's worth and i you know again there was an audience for those those videos people liked it and so you can imagine going to see a movie and seeing that same sort of uh those caricatures in the in the uh, i say caricatures because they obviously are very stereotypical in in those videos (laughs) right being kind of put out on the screen in front of you and and people going to hear dave's music on t on the uh, big screen and i think you're right i think it would have um you know i'm sure critics would have ripped it but there would have been enough teenagers in america who loved van halen david lee roth that it would have gone and it would have made money. I'm sure it would oh, have made absolutely. money. Absolutely. I know I would have seen it at oh, least yeah. two, three times in the theater. I mean, that, there's a one part in the script where I was reading it and we were driving to the venue, to the gig, and I had, I had the script and I was reading it. And he's talking to, I guess, what, his, what was his romantic interest in the first part of the script. And, and then the punchline is, 
but I'm 14 years old or something like that. And, <laughs> and I, I really laughed out loud. I really did. Because, not because of her being 14, but the fact that they actually, in 1985, they put that in the script and yeah. no one yeah. batted an eye. Yeah, yeah. And then, I, you know, it's funny. I just reread it. This is how sad my life is. I just reread the script myself and I can remember the rest of the joke. It was like, I'm 14. And then the joke is like somebody puts a hand over her mouth and Pete Angelo says, 14 days till she turns 19 or something like that. Like, you know, again, it's like, <laughs> oh you know, it's it's like, again, it's like, a, you know, today people would probably be like, yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. But um, yeah, Pete and Dave worked very, very hard on that. They had another third person. I'm sorry, I cannot remember his name. His first name is Jerry. He was a very successful sitcom writer. So they, you know, they had worked on this with uh, a guy who had the uh, experience with how to put these things together. And clearly those guys had a had a sense. And, um, you know, even think about this. I mean, I, I can you imagine how big a Van Halen movie would have been? And, uh, you know, it's not my place to say those guys made the wrong decision in meeting Ed, Alex and Mike, whoever didn't want to do it. But nonetheless, um, it would have been massive if there was a Van Halen movie in 1985. Oh. Dave and Eddie, it would have been massive. Like, you know, I can imagine like they did the Kids Are All Right movie, some live shots of the band yeah. with some, you know, whatever they did, like backstage stuff. I mean, it would have been huge. Huge. And it would have cemented them as real iconic figures in rock and roll because, you know, I think one of the reasons why you did write the book, why Ian did write his book, was because both of you guys saw Van Halen as this kind of lost band that was so humongous at one point and now almost a footnote for a certain generation of people while they're, you know, new generations are uh, 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 idolizing Black Sabbath and uh, Led Zeppelin, that goes on and on. But people forget Van Halen blew Black Sabbath off the stage, you know, like, and I, I, I feel that that Van Halen just doesn't get their just due, even though they've sold like, I don't know, 80 million albums. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, we could talk about that all day. I, I always, you know, my basic take on that is because there's been so many iterations, meaning so many, there's been the, you know, the, the, the lead singer replacements and the, just the Michael Anthony leaving. I think that's that part of it, to be honest, has actually hurt Van Halen's legacy. I think people Absolutely. can look back and say, you know, it's interesting. People look back at um, black Sabbath and they don't really it doesn't seem to be as colored by the oh the Jeff Martin years or something like that. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's not like people look at that and go those years with other lead singers for Black Sabbath. They don't look at the uh, the Ice T record and say that that diminishes Sabbath's legacy. But I, for whatever reason, I think because it was just so the, the personality drama became so central to the band. Um, I think it really I think it really again takes takes away from that. So it's you know Van Halen never gets considered in the same breath like a band like Zeppelin. Um, you know, and I think if they had broken up. In 1985, never made another record again. You know, you you we look at them. I think as a band like the Doors or Zeppelin or the Who or something like that. One of these bands that their mm -hmm. legacy is so powerful and so important. And um, you know, that could be maybe that's not right, but that's my basic take is that just sort of the 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 negativity of all that stuff kind yes. of ends up corroding. People are like, Ugh, I don't want to fight about Sammy and Dave anymore. You <laughs> know, every time on the internet you go on the day every day there's a new fight about Sammy and Dave. Yeah, and and wouldn't you say that if they left it at those six albums? And the Sammy Sammy Hagar Van Hagar years never happened. Then I think a lot of the Van Hagar years took away from the legacy as well, uh, with the schmaltzy love ballads uh, that Eddie's still kind of trying to churn out. Um, and I think that had a that took away from the rebellious spirit of what Van Halen stood for for 
I think all of us and what I, brought us to their fold. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, one of the interviews I did with Ted Templeman, we were just chatting gen- more generally. We we're talking about 1978 and his basic opinion at the time was that, you know, he thought, well, let's not call it Van Halen. In other words, when he realized that Dave was going to leave Van Halen or that Eddie had whatever, however it went down, fired, quit, whatever, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that uh, in, in talking to people, at Warner Brothers and talking to people in Van Halen, Ted's basic point was it's not really Van Halen if Dave leaves. Um, and I don't think yeah. I'm speaking out of turn by saying that didn't make Eddie very happy. I don't think I think I could say speak for Ted to say he wasn't meaning any offense to Eddie about his name. Like he wasn't saying you guys aren't the band, but he was basically saying it's a different it's a different beast. It's basically going to be something different. Let's leave Van Halen alone and let's move on to something, you know, call it something else, Van Hagar or something like that. I'm not saying Ted said that, but yeah. something else. And, um, you know, because it is, like you're saying, it, is a, it ended up being a very different band. But as people always like to point out to me, you know, uh, Sabbath didn't change their name when Dio came in the band. They didn't change the name when uh, Ian Gillen came in the band. And so there's, you know, there obviously is this commercial um uh, desire by the record companies to be like, well, we're not changing the name because we just spent six, six years or eight years or 10 years building yeah. up the band's name. We're not going to change it. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's part of it too. The direction changed sharp, sharply. And, uh, but the direction I, I, never changed with Sabbath. It's so sharply yeah. as in Van Halen. True. I mean, I agree. I mean, I think, I think it's hard to imagine um, Ozzy maybe singing neon nights, but you're, but you're like, you're saying it's right. not as if it's, if it's not in the spirit of the first, Right. Sabbath records in some ways. And I think that's, and that's true. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, yeah, Ian was right on target too. And that's, I, I agree. His book was dead on about that. It's just sort of, look, there's this, you know, people have kind of like put it to, so, to the side in a way that they shouldn't. Um, and this being a band that, that uh, gave rise to the most influential guitar player since Jimi Hendrix, without a doubt, top five frontman of all time, great mm-hmm. songs, platinum records, 10 million of Van Halen one, 10 million of, of 1984. It's one of the biggest bands in history. And yet they don't seem to be getting um, their proper credit for that. No. And that's why I'm like reaching out to you, reaching out to Ian, finding Mitch Malloy um, and just putting Van Halen on the table. And let's talk about this very, very, very interesting band, whether you like them or not. Uh, there's just so many sides to this band that it's you could talk about them for hours. I mean, I just the fact that the crazy from the heat when you brought that up, I was like, oh yeah, that's right. He had this movie, uh, and that was going to happen, and then it didn't happen. And you know, back in '85 and '86, we didn't have the internet, so you would just you would just learn what was going on by maybe an MTV news flash, you know, like, and it was like a, a blip. It was yeah. nothing. Yeah, or in some interview in 1986, you know, it, it would come up or something like that. And then, of course, Dave really didn't want to talk about that, obviously. You know, yeah. he doesn't want to say the movie didn't get made. So it just was like, again, it was like this little tiny little sliver, one sentence. You'd be like, there were, oh, there was supposed to be a movie. And we never <laughs> learned anything else about it. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that was the cool thing about talking to Billy um, and Greg. These guys were just kind of plucked out of uh, semi-obscurity. I mean, Bill, obviously, Greg Bissonette, very, very accomplished musician. He's playing with... Um, uh, you know, great, great bands. Now, of course, the name of the, uh, the the band he played with before Dave was an incredibly famous uh, jazz musician. It's escaping me. But uh, these guys sort of have their careers going from 
they're working musicians, making a living, doing okay to being these guys with this superstar around them. I mean, they were like, yeah, this is crazy. I'm joining this band and we're going to make a movie. You know, it's like, oh, wow, you know, oh my God, we're going to be, you know, we're going to be the band in the movie. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, all credit to Dave for being audacious uh, in that. And, you know, did that blow up Van Halen? I, it's it, I think it's certainly based on what Eddie said that Dave left to be a movie star. I, I think clearly it irked Eddie quite a bit that Dave decided to go ahead with this movie, yeah. even though the band had decided not to make a movie. But on the other hand, as I said already, it's kind of hard for me not to be sympathetic to Dave's idea based on the fact that all the big movie stars, uh, excuse me, musicians we can think of, you know, big bands and big stars of the past, they were in movies. I mean, they, you know, that was what they did. Dean Martin, they were in movies. They yeah. sang songs and they were in movies and that's what they did. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a always been this thing where you got a musician, headstrong musician, headstrong kind of show showman song and dance man. And uh, it's like, yeah, oil and water. But, you know, it, that's how it goes. The, the one interesting thing is, you know, you make mention of how Eddie was the first to lash out. Eddie seems to be someone who who says things and does things very quickly without thinking about it too much and then has to live with the consequences. Now there's been a new twist on Twitter uh, with the opposite effect. Uh, Sammy Hagar reaching out to Eddie on his birthday, Eddie replying on the same day. Um, it made headlines. You obviously know about this. I tweeted about it. Um, what do you think? You know, what I think is I said privately to a couple of people, I, I look, I don't know what what the deal is. I suspect there's something there's some angle that Sammy has. I mean, I'd like to think in my heart of hearts that Sammy just felt to be a nice guy to send Eddie a birthday wish. I don't know. I'm sort of a little bit cynical about that. I'm not trying to bash Sammy, but I think Sammy is a very strategic and smart man and how he. Uh, handles his career. I, I think all of us would look and say, I wish I could be Sammy Hagar with all of his successes and <laughs> restaurants. And yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I would like to be hang out with Sammy for 24 hours just to pick his brain about how to be get rich. Yeah, exactly. Uh, People don't realize that about him. Yeah. The other thing is that, um, you know, I, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn. I, I suspect, I don't know with 100% certainty that Eddie's wife, who's his publicist, Janie, is the person who probably um, oh. monitors Eddie's Twitter. Uh, I'm not saying that wasn't a conversation between the two of them, but you might imagine what the conversation could be like where it's, Sammy just wished you a happy birthday. What do we do? And then it's like, if we don't say thank you, right. it sort of seems like, you know, like you're being an uh, ungracious person. So... I mean, I, I'm willing to believe anything from Sammy's back to it was just a, you know what, the polite thing to do in the situation. Let's put a good face in this. We'll say thank you and we'll just move on so that nobody has anything negative to say about us meeting um, the Van Halen camp with Sammy. You know, uh, but I actually don't know. You know, and, and I don't mean to throw you under the bus, but I will say a tweet like that to me as a fan, we're nuts. Like I will go from zero to a hundred and go, Oh, they're getting back together. Like I'm crazy like that. That's how I, I would think. Like, well, no, I, mean, I think that's the thing. It's like, that's, that's entirely possible. I mean, again, it's like, you know, I'm not holding anything back. I don't have any, any information. I don't, yeah. um, I, I'll tell you one thing I do very, very strongly suspect. Uh, if you look at Wolfgang's Twitter over the last year, we may have talked about this back and forth. You and I in, in private messages is that there have been a number of comments where, 
he talks about his album as he's working on that he can't wait to get back to work on his album. And then as you, if you look at his Twitter right now, it says, I'm the basis for Van Halen and, and Tremonti for now, which makes me yes. believe that he would like to graduate for now out of Van Halen. Um, not because he doesn't have affection for his uncle and his father, I'm sure, but just because he has ambitions of his own and he realizes that he's 25 or however old he is. They're 60. Um, they're not going to be doing this in 10 years for sure. They'll most likely not be doing Van Halen. And so he wants to do something else and have his own career. So, I mean, to me, that's the even more interesting thing is that I I, I suspect that, that Wolfie – probably was kind of like, damn, I wish I could be working on my record last year. Not saying he didn't probably enjoy touring with the, his father and had a great time. I'm not saying that. But, you know, he, he was – it was – if you followed his Twitter, it was clear he was very focused on I want to make my record. I want to finish my record. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine if you're touring, you know this, it's probably very hard to think about recording music and thinking about making an album when you're on the bus every single day or moving from place to place trying to, to do uh, a tour. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny that there, he's the only person in the entire world that would be on stage playing bass in Van Halen going, God, I just wish I was in the studio. <laughs> right. Again, it's not, I'm sure he – I mean, again, I'm not trying to suggest that he doesn't love playing bass no, in Van no, Halen. No, no. But again, sort of like you know, you, can, you could also imagine if you have this project you really want to work on, he's committed to. He, he plays the drums, the bass, the guitar, um, that you're like, damn, right, exactly. I want to finish this. I want to get this done. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this is great. I, I I can talk about Van Halen all day long, but of course, you got to do your thing, and I got to do mine. Thank you, Greg, for coming on the podcast and and uh, letting me give me a chance to talk about Van Halen with a Van Halen expert. Hey, yeah, that's a uh, that's a title that I, I think I've uh, I've been I've been li- lived with now. Uh, yeah, but I appreciate you saying that. And uh, the thing I would say too is just. Um, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, that's the thing. We could, again, we talk about it all day. I always tell people, and you probably know this better than anybody, it's like with bands, everything is seems solid, can go south in a, in a second, and we just don't know. I mean, who knows? They might even know what's next. I mean, I, you know, I'd like to think that Eddie and Alex day-to-day probably are and sitting there like around some like uh, table with a gigantic map of the United States thinking, what's our next move? Like they're generals in this army or something <laughs> like that. I think it's probably more like, hey, it's a good day. Let's play some music. Let's get a coffee. And then, you know, they sort of maybe just taking a breather for now um, after the tour rather than sort of plotting this this grand uh, this grand strategy for the next five years of the band. But well, who knows? What's more interesting is the fact that the DLR band almost got back together for a night uh, a couple of months ago. Well, I think that's going to happen. I mean, yeah. I think based on not what anyone like Bissonette or, or Sheen have told me, but if you just, um, they, both of those guys made clear to me that, hey, if Dave wants to do it, we're going to make it work and we're going to do it too. So it's, you know, it's it basically, it's the balls in Dave's court. And I think that it's clear to me that based on that um, missed opportunity there to reunite, I think that Dave is obviously game. He wouldn't have showed up if he wasn't game to do it. Yeah. So it's just a matter of when the schedule is all clear. I know Vi has a lot of stuff going on this year and she and it's got winery dogs. And I think once the schedule clears, I would love to see those guys do a couple of new songs too. Um, be amazing. You know, do, we'll be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Greg. Thank you so much. Hey, you're welcome. Hey, Danko, thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, people, yeah, swing by and uh, say hello to me at Greg Renoff on Twitter. And uh, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thanks, man.